Our culture is in a crisis, and the solution to that crisis is the gospel message. St. John's Seminary, the seminary of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, offers an online MA in pastoral ministry degree for anyone interested in receiving formation for ministry. This program helps students improve their knowledge of the Catholic intellectual tradition and develop practical skills for ministry. A studio with professional video, audio, and lighting equipment allows our students to have an enjoyable technological experience, a necessity for any online learning environment. Anyone who is working in and around the Roman Catholic Church in North America needs an education like this. There's no way you could get this kind of education anywhere than at a seminary. Our online Master of Arts in Pastoral Ministry offers you the chance to continue your education in ministry and designed to provide you with the knowledge, spiritual formation, and practical skills that you need to serve the family of God in our parishes, schools, and other ministries. By grounding yourself in the intellectual tradition of the Catholic Church, you will be able to go out into this culture and leaven it with the good news. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Maggie Gallagher, the executive director of the Benedict XVI Institute for Sacred Music and Divine Worship. Maggie's experience includes successfully founding two nonprofit organizations, the National Organization for Marriage and the Institute for Marriage and Public Policy. She was also a founding editor of two magazines, the online The National Pulse and the Manhattan Institute's quarterly journal of urban policy, The City Journal. She was a nationally syndicated columnist for 17 years, an editor and a columnist at National Review, and an author or co-author of four books, most recently, Debating Same-Sex Marriage, published by Oxford University Press. And the Benedict XVI Institute, uh, their mission is a unique mission to open the door of beauty to God. We pursue this mission through two great strategies providing practical resources for more beautiful and reverent liturgies and energizing a Catholic culture of arts. Our core vision, the greatest art, the greatest liturgy the Catholic Church has ever produced is yet to come. First of all, Maggie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, I'd like to have a conversation today um, about sort of what is, what's at the heart of the Benedict XVI Institute. So Catholic music, the liturgy, um, sort of some of the str- uh, struggles or issues or challenges that are happening in those realms. Uh, and then how the Benedict and why the Benedict XVI Institute was founded in order to address those issues. And then just sort of uh, ask some questions about you and what, what excites you about this uh, this project. So um, why don't we um, just begin uh, based on the uh, the mission statement that I read a minute ago. It seems that the um, that the Institute is in general trying to address the problems of a lack of beauty today in art and liturgy. Um, the common refrain in our culture, of course, is beauty is in the eye of the beholder, although this Radical subjectivity is not consistent with the Catholic tradition's understanding of objective beauty. So why don't we start with the question of beauty, if that's what the Institute is focused on? How would you describe what beauty is? Let me me step back a moment, because I think this is important. Um, The Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni founded the Benedict XVI Institute. And if you asked him, as I have, what is the greatest problem that Catholic Church faces, he would say a loss of the sense of the sacred. We are losing the sense that the Eucharist is the real presence, that is an enormously sacred object. Even church-going Catholics uh, don't experience the Eucharist that way. We're losing the sense of the sacredness of human life and the general culture, and it bleeds out into the way Catholics look at the body and the world and human sexuality and a lot else. Um, We're losing, one short way to put it is that uh, Pope Francis recently, a couple years back, uh, made saints of, I think it's a total of five, but it might be eight French monks who were martyred protecting the Eucharist from desecration. Uh, I think during the French Revolution, it was in Italy. They're French in Italy. I don't. I don't know the wars right. But, so much violence. But uh, you know, I was thinking about that a lot because it 
what is it to the way a lot of us think, maybe especially us Americans, it makes no sense to die to protect mm. a wafer from desecration. I mean, isn't isn't the human is that really a good thing to do? Is that a heroic witness? And the fact that, you know, in the fact that people have a hard time understanding what a magnificent thing that is to do, to die, to protect the body of Christ from desecration is a sign of a larger loss of ability to see spiritually, I think. And um, it, you know, the, the Archbishop has chatted with me. He's not, doesn't like to be a killjoy, but he is, he's noticed that, you know, when he was a boy, he tells a story, well, actually he was a young man in Rome and there was a, uh, uh, he was saying mass and there was a uh, pancake breakfast or something in the basement and somebody was coming up to get more chairs and he came up in the moment of consecration. And as the, 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 the now archbishop noticed that he immediately stopped and he knelt and he was silent, right? And it's because of that sort of deep Catholic imagination, that understanding that you are in the presence of the Holy of Holies as our Jewish brothers and sisters gave us that language. And he says, now I even see priests when the light is on in the sanctuary, indicating that Christ is physically there with us. They, they will talk loudly, they will tell jokes, they will laugh, they, will, they, they don't mean to do any harm, but they are not um, enculturated. They don't experience the sacredness of the body of Christ there in the same way. It's another way of saying that the, the, the Catholic faith is founded on sacred mysteries that Christ himself gave us. And I would say, this is not the Archbishop speaking, that the trouble we face is that we have become too dependent on the idea of cognitive meanings of words to convey meanings. We've lost the way in which spiritual realities can really only be conveyed, the spiritual mysteries, um, through symbols and images and actions that bespeak of the sacredness particularly of the Eucharist. So there are three great transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness. And there are still a lot of great Catholic apologists making arguments about truth. And there's no one doing more good for the poor and the sick uh, than Catholics across the country, although sometimes we don't hear those stories enough. Um, but for some reason, in the last 60 years or so, we just dropped beauty, and we tend to think of it as a frill or a luxury item instead of a profound way of conveying real spiritual truths. Now, it's part of the meaning when St. Francis, and there is no one who loved helping the poor more than St. Francis, um, but uh, when he said, uh, preach constantly, use words if necessary, he, he's also, I mean, there, there are letters from him admonishing priests for uh, saying the mass sloppily, for not uh, having beautiful chalices or vestments or um, altar cloths that would be fitting to show that Christ the King has come again to save us in his glory at mass. So I guess I feel like if you, if you, Ask the Archbishop what the mission it, it is really to evangelize again in the classic Catholic way, because what's classically Catholic works, um, the deep truths of the faith, the spiritual realities that the eyes may not see and the tongue may not be able to say directly, but that liturgy in particular is uh, the, the queen of the arts can convey if we decide to do so again. And so I know I've been talking a long time and I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you a chance to break in here, but when, when people, and this happens, people, when we put on these um, beautiful liturgies with a special focus on new masses, new sacred music for the mass, because we don't want people to think of our tradition as a dead tradition that ended 500 years ago. 
and because we want them on themes that are relevant, like Mass of the Americas, the Unity Mass to Our Lady of Guadalupe and Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception, that our 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 spirit that the Archbishop perceives as spiritual and necessary or significant, and certainly that Mass has really touched uh, hearts and souls. Um, the the purpose is not to revive beauty for its own sake, but to convey again in classically Catholic fashion the truths of the faith in a way that words alone, as important as they are, you know, I went to Yale, I'm a big believer in in reason uh, along with our faith, but the word alone is is naked and unsupported unless we act at mass like what is happening really is happening. And that's how we teach and preach the sacredness of the Eucharist. I certainly agree with you and the Archbishop that um, about 60 years ago or so, we've sort of, as you, as you mentioned, we dropped beauty uh, uh, as, a, as important, um, whether it's evangelizing or, or just uh, forming the next generation. Uh, what would you or, or he say about sort of um, the roots of that? In other words, you know, if we want to combat or change the problem uh, of the past or or even the present, we sort of have to figure out how did we get here so that we don't keep making the same mistakes. So what would you say about is the sort of root cause of the, the, the drop in interest in beauty and, and so, that, so that we can move forward and reclaim that? big fan of root causes as a way of thinking. I, I, I actually think you, you causes are very complicated. There's something very Catholic in thinking that if you just correct the wrong thought at the back of it, then everything good will flow and it ignores uh, inertia and original sin. Um, I, I, that's often common in the political discourse of the Catholic integralists, right? I'm like, so uh, what, what I think, what I, and more importantly, what Archbishop Cordelioni clearly sees is that we are not going to have a Catholic revival or even a Catholic Eucharistic Renaissance until we bring back sacredness to the way, the ritual, the way we do the liturgy at the Mass. And he, you know, he's a firm believer. He said the problem with the the Novus Ordo, was, is that it offers very many different options, and it can be done um, with great beauty and reverence and sacredness and convey the reality of the Mass, and it is being done that way in many, many places. But, you know, there's, there's, there's the practical problem of a church that feels itself in retreat, where it views in many places, it's not true all over this country, Many places it feels that it's shrinking, that money is shrinking, people are competing, right? There's a the the priests often do not know uh, how to build a beautiful scola for their parish, and they can get resistance from the existing parishioners. A friend of mine, she was a former board member. We were we were chatting this problem, like why is it so hard to get beautiful and reverent liturgies? You don't need a 20-voice choir. I mean, an organ and a cantor can be a beautiful and sacred experience. And she said to me, okay, don't don't go, this is not my words, this is hers. She said, in because in every parish there is a woman, we'll charitably call her late middle-aged, we'll call her Joanna. And Joanna has a warbly soprano voice that she loves to serve the Lord by raising uh, with great theatrical intensity. And Joanna has five or six friends who are all very active in the parish and take up a lot of the work who come and sit in the front row and applaud Joanna's uh, gifts. And then my friend said, and she drives every young man within 20 miles away from the church. I had to laugh because I was like, oh my gosh, when I was in New York, my, my parish had exactly a Joanna and my right. uh, teenage son, who is very musical, he, 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 he both as a singer and as a um, composer, musical theater, actually, he, he visibly winced, <laughs> you know, like, 
Oh dear, I think that is a problem. It yeah. is also a problem that suggests that uh, turnover. You know, they they say we sing all of these hymns, um, these these um, a lot of hymns about us and how wonderful we are and how we love and how they'll know we are Christians and. And what I started noticing at my parish, which is a beautiful parish, is that nobody sings these hymns, right? Mm -hmm. Part of it is Americans don't sing anymore, right? We listen to performances and we don't know how to sing. And we're not really interested in singing these songs. And um, my parish has since moved into a uh, uh, far more traditional forms of worship. It's a Nova Sordo parish, but, and, Everyone seems to like it a great deal, and I know. Um, so we have this idea that people should participate in the Mass, and we have what I think, honestly, the, 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 in arguments sometimes, when online arguments, it's just Twitter, so don't give it too much mind. But people are like, I want to see active participation. And that means if you're standing and you're sitting and you're raising your hands, you're actively participating, although often you know, the, the goal is the interior participation mm. in the prayer of the mass and the preparation for the coming of Jesus and his sacrifice for us again. So um, I don't know. It, there's something deep here because we, you know, a, a, a priest in New York told me, he's retired now, he's a convert from Anglicanism, at an extremely successful parish that provided most of the um, vocations for the diocese or, you know, a large number. And this is true everywhere. There's a, if you go and you look at the posters of the seminarians, there's an overrepresentation of certain parishes that are producing the next generation of priests. And he said, the priest came up to me and said, well, how do you get so many vocations? Do you like hang out in mass and chat with the guys? And he's like, no, not really. We, we have an all male altar and uh, they have a very holy and reverent mass and people come to encounter Christ in the Eucharist there and it produces vocations. And they go, he said, they go away very disappointed because they don't want to do that. And um, so hence we're soon going to be facing a, you know, uh, the Christ, the, the challenge of far fewer uh, priests and we're going to, you know, every, most every diocese, except maybe in the South is experiencing that. Uh, picking off, piggybacking off of what's called the Joanna problem. And, and uh, I don't, I know that neither of us are really all that interested in, in adjudicating the so-called liturgy wars. So we can avoid that issue. I, I, I think oftentimes we're having the wrong conversation about, you know, organs versus guitars. Um to me, it's a question of you can can you play well, right? You can play a guitar well, you can play an organ well, you can play a guitar terribly, you can play an organ terribly, which in my mind points to the question of uh, formation, especially for young people, about becoming excellent musicians, right? Um, so I guess if you could if you could wave a magic wand and you could change the way young people are formed musically, liturgically. I mean, you just sort of mentioned one thing, I guess, having an all-male altar. Um, but to, to raise that next generation of musicians so we can have excellent, beautiful music, irregardless of the type of instrument it is, what what would you do? How would you change musical formation today? Uh, I can, uh, two, two things. The first thing is, I think we need more Gregorian chant camps, and we need the children's mass to be Gregorian chant. Mm -hmm. And this sounds very counterintuitive, but, and again, mm -hmm. Archbishop Cordelloni is the one who pointed this out to me. He said, that we do these children's choruses and they sing childish songs. Mm -hmm. And then by the time they're eight or nine at the latest, they associate the mass and being in the chorus with being babies, right? And they don't want to do it anymore. But I have seen children's chant camps, there's particularly gifted, um, teacher in San Diego, Marianne Carr Wilson, um, who's now training other teachers. And in five days, she can take kids from the ages of five to 15. And by the end of it, they are chanting the mass. And by the end of it, they know far more about the history of the church and the sacraments as well. It's a, it's a wonderful catechetical tool. Um, and the Children are doing something grown up, 
right? They're not doing something childish. And actually children learn music, it's a language. So just as they learn foreign languages faster than adults, they pick up musical language uh, better. And also like to say, I heard, I believe it was Professor Bill Mark said at the first church music association I ever went to in preparation for taking on this role. Um, he, he pointed out that for centuries, people sang chant who not only could not read music, they didn't know how to read, right? It's, it's actually a very intuitive way of joining together, emphasizing the unity of the body. And um, it's something that they uh, can do their entire life. And so there, I mean, there are, that, that's the first thing I would do. The second thing I want to do is give a shout out to another organization who we've, we're partnering with them for a Composers Institute with Sir James McMillan in Princeton this year, was in Alexandria last year. And uh, a young man, music director named Peter Carter founded it. And um, they have a model where it's a really wonderful model where they bring over top uh, musicians, masters of their craft, like Sir James McMillan. And then they invite, they're doing a, I think a choral, an organ and a conductors and a composers institute, but maybe only three of those four this summer. And they come together and you have to audition for it, um, you know, send a tape via Zoom or however. And um, then there's a beautiful performance at the end and these singers get to know each other and they get to meet their heroes in the craft. And Sir James McMillan said something interesting to me at the, after the last one last May. He said, I've been to a lot of young composers institute. He's, he's very generous. Um, and he said, but I have never been to one where after a full day in workshops and then a little uh, appetizer on the plaza, everyone goes into church and they pray Compline together. Right. And for him as a Catholic, that's really a very different experience of the union of the craft and the purpose of the craft, which is ultimately the glory of God. So um, I think I think that's a wonderful we're starting to see these institutions to rebuild. We're going to launch something called Catholic Sacred Musician Today. And we, we kind of came about in part, in part because we'd like to build a better pipeline, not only for Frank LaRocca, who is our composer in residence, but for a whole circle of young Catholic composers, living Catholic composers, some of them are young, um, who are beginning to be formed around what we're doing at the Benedict 16th Institute and create a better pipeline into Catholic parishes. So they're more aware of the works of living Catholic composers. And I, I, I kind of went around and started asking my musical Catholic friends, what's the, what are the best five Catholic choirs in America? And the interesting thing is most people, well, everyone had a long pause. It wasn't in the top of their heads. It's not something we talk about or write about or honor or, you know, it's, it's very encouraging to artists if you're not going to make a lot of money, which most of us are not to know that someone cares about your work. And it's, if you pull these artists into community with one another, which is one of the things we wanna do with Catholic Sacred Musician today, um, which two young com composers, Mark Nowakowski and Chris Mueller are going to edit for us. Uh, we, we, we hope to, to increase the awareness of, to share the, um, to share the, the problems, the challenges, and the way they overcame them in building a beautiful choir. And um, can, I have a third shout out, you know, Jenny Donaldson, who's the new Nowicka, no, I can't pronounce, it's Polish. It, it's, it, it's like N-O-W-I-C-A, but um, Jenny, my friend Jenny Donaldson, uh, is now the sacred music professor, uh, uh, sac professor at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park. And she's doing some incredible programs uh, online and some are partly online and partly on campus um, to including one, which is just a class on how you build a scola. 
uh, it's the Institute for Catholic Culture, as she founded there at the Institute. And they are, it includes not only like the musical stuff you need to know and the theological stuff you need to know, but like, how do you fund it, right? How do you introduce it? And uh, I'm sure that we're going to see a flood of successful new liturgists, uh, including lay music directional people who are going to raise the sacredness, elevate the sacredness of the mass as we move forward. And I, you know, that's the lesson of the fierce allegiance to the traditional Latin mass. I mean, I happen to believe that Pope Benedict was fundamentally right when he said these two forms of the mass need to influence each other. Um, in particular, that we need to know what the mass is, what the priest is, by seeing our historic or classic form of the liturgy, uh, and then take that sensibility into the celebration of the Novus Ordo, which is pretty much, I think, what Vatican II actually envisioned. Um, you know, it makes sense to me that if you're going to do readings from the Bible, they should be in the vernacular, right? Uh, but um, what was once holy can't be considered bad. And there is something in that that rupture, which is clearly still not healed, and which I think Pope Francis has taken his step in a hope of healing it. But I think history will probably show that Pope Benedict's vision was more realistic. Let's talk a little more deeply about the the um, Benedict XVI Institute and how it goes about sort of enacting its mission. So I'd mentioned uh, providing practical resources for more beautiful and reverent liturgies and uh, 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 energizing a Catholic culture of the arts. So what are the sort of ways, the resources, the uh, programming uh, that the Institute does in order to enact that vision? Well, we've evolved in, you know, um, in part because I, I don't actually live in San Francisco and I'm not really a liturgist or a musician. So the, the, we, we've kind of leaned into what has been most effective as we've tried different things. It's also the fact that Jenny Donaldson is for the Bay Area is taking the seminary is taking over a lot of the practical formation role. So what we realized with the mass of the Americas is that there is an enormous hunger to experience sacred beauty and also an enormous excitement generated around the idea that Catholic culture is still a creative culture. You know, Word on Fire is the big dog in the beauty field. And obviously many people love their, their what they produce and I'm glad they're there. But there's two things that uh, they don't do. They don't do liturgy, probably because of the need to avoid the liturgy wars. And they mostly promote the work of artists who've been dead hundreds of years. Because that's the great patrimony of the church. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. But it is very uh, discouraging to artists if it appears that the church is not interested in liturgical composition anymore. And Frank LaRocca, our composer in residence, told me the first time I met him, he, he said, composing for the liturgy is very different from composing for the concert stage, even if you're composing sacred music for the concert stage. And he said, essentially, we're deforming a next generation of young composers, because if they feel called to create sacred music, the only people who are commissioning new works are uh, concert choirs. And that's a problem. So we made it our mission to uh, to do great sacred music as prayer, as it was originally attended, and not performance, which means we do, um, we commission about one great new liturgy uh, mass. Um, this year, it's the Misa Pangue Pange Lingua, uh, a Mass for Eucharistic Renaissance. It's going to be May 19th at the Cathedral of San Francisco. And it, Frank LaRocca composed it. We're going to bring in a premier 20-voice choir to celebrate it. And it's going to be incredible. And this, this is the Mass that will launch the USCCB's um, 
National Eucharistic Procession. It's starting from mm -hmm. the West, from San Francisco. So afterwards, we process with the Archbishop over the Golden Gate Bridge. And there is a kind of funky, gay, um, they, it, it's sort of like a race, but really they say it's a 12-mile party, uh, mm -hmm. beta breakers at the same time. So we appreciate uh, that uh, your prayers that these two groups will meet in good cheer if they meet at all. Um, at San Francisco. So, and then follow, uh, so uh, the Mass of the Americas is also, I mean, the, these Masses are now go, traveling to different, the vision is great music commissioned from the heart of the church that wins new audiences and converts souls and hearts by traveling through the great cathedrals then in Europe, that was the Renaissance here in the United States, but also abroad before ending up in the secular concert uh, world where it at least wins respect for and reminds people of all the great beauty that, that they appreciate. They don't appreciate anything else about the Catholic church. So it, it serves those multiple purposes and um, we're, we're seeing it actually happening. It's, that was the vision what's classically Catholic works and it turns out to be working. Um, and so it's uh, it's very inspiring. I, I should mention our second, our first CD of the Mass of the Americas. It, it's a recording. You can stream it. You don't have to buy a CD. I'm just old. I'll call it a record <laughs> album if you want. They um, it was released September of 2022 and debuted at number one on the Billboard charts. And the second one, which is going to be two Masses, the Mess de Malades, Honoring Our Lady of Lords, and a requiem for the forgotten uh, is now in pre-orders at capellarecords.com. And we have a mass at the Oakland Cathedral, the Mass de Malades, on sat um, Saturday, February 10th. That's probably in the past by the time you're listening to this. But on March 15th, the Archbishop is going to go to South Miami to the Church of the Epiphany to celebrate for the first time the requiem for the forgotten, um, which will feature a new hymn and offertory for the Ukrainian martyrs of communism by uh, the text by our poet, James Matthew Wilson, written by Frank LaRocca. So that's on the, you can find information uh, on the website, benedictinstitute.org. We'd love to see you there. And EWTN will be broadcasting both of these masses, all three of these masses, so you can participate in those ways too. That's That's really wonderful. Uh, a, a couple of questions about you, if I may. Um, what what draws you to the work of the Institute? What what gets you excited about its mission and its programs and, and gets you leaping out of bed every morning? Uh, well, I start leaping around 11 a.m. after five <laughs> cups of coffee, but <laughs> I um, this is a really fascinating job for me, and it combines two things that I find very motivating. One is to serve someone that I actually love. And I love Archbishop Cordeleone. We became friends when he was the auxiliary bishop of San Diego and we worked together to get Prop 8 on the ballot. So that's a, a, a friendship forged in the bonds of, of battle. Um, and I like to do things that I believe if I don't do them, no one else will do. And I think it is true. We had a major donor ask me, he's a famous contrarian, is there anyone else who's doing what you're doing? And I think I can honestly say no. This, this vision of reviving the classic Catholic model of the liturgy, the great liturgy, using that to inspire parishes, and then that in turn inspires artists. One of the things I've noted, I, as I said, I don't go to the Latin Mass regularly, but I have noticed that almost all of the young composers that are gathering around have all been formed by the traditional Latin mass. And it's certainly the case that if you, you, there, there, there's the awareness of that this world that we see is not all there is, is kind of key to an artistic flourishing in the, in the Catholic culture. So um, I'm interested as well because when I, I spent about, well, I spent about 20 years 
of my life in what you might call the culture wars or trying to get around the culture wars in marriage, you know, first, whether children are better off if they have a married mom and dad, and secondly, in the gay marriage debate. And I learned a lot from the first more successful and the second uh, less successful efforts about how culture operates. So we have a theory of culture that is very different. Um, most, I think Dana Joya may be the only person who has sim developed a very similar theory on his own and we're in some pretty interesting conversations about it right now. But the piece that, the, the first question you have to ask is, what gives artists, if you want to energize a culture of, of culture of the arts, what gives artists the energy to create? Um, and there are people who will say, oh, they're geniuses, they're, you know, they're driven, they can't help it. Some people are like that, but I think we lose a lot of artists in, because they don't see a pathway uh, to this calling. And if you look historically, there is an answer to that. What gives artists the energy to create? And the first answer is before they write for the world, they're typically writing for each other, which means, you know, that my prime example of this is one of my favorite poets, John Donne, who I was shocked to learn in a biography I read recently, never published a single poem during his life. Mm -hmm. What they were doing was hanging out in the pubs in London and reciting poetry to each other. And all the other poets were just blown over by John Donne and they were writing it down. And, you know, eventually 400 years later, I'm reading his poetry in a class at Yale, but it began, you know, the Bronte sisters are another great example. You know, they wrote probably maybe even millions, but certainly hundreds of thousands of words in that remote parsonage with no realistic possibility that anyone would read them, but they wrote stories for each other. And so this is easy for patrons to miss because uh, the businessmen will typically mark something significant uh, in that it sells a lot of copies. That's, that's That kind of dovetails with the evangelical Protestant view that converting culture consists of converting individual hearts and minds and um, it, it's, uh, you know, I can tell you dozens of novelists who sold, made millions of dollars, sold millions of copies and had no discernible effect on the culture. And that's because what makes a work of art significant culturally is that it's fertile. It gives birth to other works of art. And then these other works of art have to enter the conversation of intellectuals and patrons en route to finding a wider audience. So we think a lot about how do you build community among the artists and encourage them. And, you know, we have lots of artists now extremely grateful and flocking to us and wanting to participate. And just even if they're not benefiting, the fact that they can see other Catholic artists who are um, able to fulfill their calling is just very encouraging. And we're doing our first ever uh, in-person artist retreat at St. Patrick's Seminary, June 21st and June 22nd. I haven't announced it yet. Uh, it's gonna also be the first time that we charge for anything that we do. So free is a terrible business model, but Father Dwight Longnecker <laughs> is coming and the Archbishop will be there. And Dr. Anthony Lillis from the seminary, I think it's gonna be a wonderful, a wonderful chance for artists and art lovers to get together. So then I think a lot about how you raise the status of an artist and a work of art within the Catholic community. So people often think about evangelizing the culture, but you can't evangelize the culture until you're evangelizing the people in your pews. That, that's my view. The biggest problem we face is we bring our children to church on Sundays and whether you blame the parents or the priest, it doesn't matter. It's not working. We're losing large numbers. And you really cannot realistically expect to take over a culture, people who are not connected with you, if you haven't figured out how to preach the gospel effectively to the people who are in the pews. So in a related way, I see rather than taking over the external culture, becoming a creative minority again which is salt and light to the culture, obviously, is the most important thing. So one of the things I'm excited about is 
through a lot of, through the leadership of the Archbishop and his visibility on some important cause is, you know, we've built a list of about 80,000 Catholics so they can hear about what Archbishop does, even if the press doesn't report it. Um, and we have made people excited about Frank LaRocca's, help people get in touch with, and they become excited about Frank LaRocca's mass. And um, I'm told that we did the same for our poet in residence, James Matthew Wilson. So I feel like we have proof of concept and I'm now limited by the fact that I'm only one person, but I'm <laughs> interested in building out this model. It's not terribly expensive, uh, but it, does, it is going to take laying down the vision plan and finding some of the, the donors who really see that reviving the classic Catholic model Mm-hmm. in liturgy and the sacred arts is a key it's there's a lot of things we need to do but there can't be anything more important than liturgy and i say mm-hmm. to the people who are like you know it costs money why are you why aren't you giving this money to the poor um dorothy day said mm-hmm. when she came to san francisco and people complained they were spending all this money building uh the cathedral she said the poor need many things and we have an obligation to give them food but they also need food for the soul. And the, the, the beauty in a Catholic church is available to everyone from the poorest homeless person to the mayor of the city of San Francisco. And like I say, free is a terrible business model, but on the other hand, what is classically Catholic works? So, um, but I also think I read in the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, I believe, very interesting book, but it, was talking about what God said to the Israelites, to the Hebrew people, when he described how he wanted to be worshipped. And you know what? He said, make it gold, (laughs) right? He didn't say, build a little plain white box and give all the money to the poor. He, whether it's because he understands that where our treasure is, our heart will be, or uh, whether God, the creator of the universe, wants to be worshipped properly. I can't can't speak to it. But Christ said the same thing when the apostle criticized what we traditionally think is Mary Magdalene, but maybe not, for bringing him expensive perfume. Could have been saved for the poor. But no, it's the worship of God comes first. And after that, if people are on fire with the love of God, they will have the energy to help the poor and reach out to the forgotten and do a lot of other things too. We've talked a lot about uh, beauty and sacredness and formation uh, and and sort of lighting the fire uh, in people. Um, Can you talk about how beauty and sacredness through um, sacred music, through the liturgy uh, has formed you throughout your life? You know, it's interesting. I'm not really a, uh, I don't, I'm not an expert in either sacred music or liturgy. I successfully founded two nonprofit organizations and helped found a third. And when the Archbishop wanted to get the Benedict 16th Institute off the ground, he asked me to come help. And, you know, it's hard to hire someone who knows how to start an organization because if they do, they're usually running their own organization. But for some unusual reasons, I basically ran into a policy dispute with the board of the National Organization for Marriage. And so I stepped aside and I was available for this. My pathway, you know, the archbishop says there are people who read themselves into the church. And that's really my primary pathway. I, um, when I learn, I remember it's really through the teachings on sex and marriage, the intersection between being a young woman in the middle of the sexual revolution and watching what was happening around me, that I came to believe that what the church teaches about marriage, which is not that divorce is wrong, but that it's impossible, was what I wanted um, in a sacramental marriage. Uh, And uh, of course, that was... um, some of the things I was observing and thinking about as a young woman were said in much more magnificently by John Paul II uh, with his theology of the body. Um, but, you know, uh, there's a certain poetics to the intersection of romantic love and sexual virtue, which is marriage, right? And there's a certain loss of meaning 
which I feel very much for the young people today. Um, when it's this strange thing, it's like my truth, my truth, but it can't just be your truth. You've got to get everyone else to endorse your truth, my truth, right? Or else you can't really believe in your identity. It's like a, a, a such a strange hodgepodge. I, uh, one of my children is taking in foster children. And um, I said to him, why is everyone a lesbian? But I think the answer is that the sexual world out there is very, very scary. You know, uh, it's very brutal. It's very uncivilized. The past to courtship have been grown or overgrown and barely visible. And uh, we're seeing a lot of pain and suffering as a result. I uh, honestly came, uh, Pope Francis has been a challenge for me as he's been for some people. And I can't put it all together logically or rationally. But what I, what my epiphany was when I read in National Review about what's happening in Canada with, uh, a, a, they call it assisted suicide. But, you know, this woman, young woman is relating. She's depressed. She's thinking of killing herself. She calls the suicide Canadian Suicide Prevention Hotline. And the voice on the other end offers her assistance in committing suicide. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, without Christ, everything. Because I'm sure that person thinks of themselves as a decent, normal person. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow civilization can fall so far, so fast that you can hear an anguished young woman seeking help to avoid suicide and you can offer to help her kill herself. That's, there. There, there is no, if, if the church's teachings aren't true, then there is no civilization, I don't think. Final question. Uh, I always like to end on a note of hope. We are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. Um, when you think of the the um, challenges that we've talked about, um, going back to you know loss of sacredness that the Archbishop mentioned, and and uh, abandonment of beauty over the last sixty years, and you think about those, and you think about uh, some of the things that you mentioned about um, the revitalization that's happening. Uh, what gives you hope? Well, you know, I was asked how at, at a, one of our events and that we did a, a Mass of the Americas at Old St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. And I was asked that we have little receptions afterwards and talks. And I was asked, um, how do you not despair? Actually, the Archbishop was asked and he said something. He said, Maggie, do you have a good answer for that? And I'm like, yeah, it, it, you know, the answer, the antidote to despair is to love and to build and to create. And right where you are, do something that makes the world better. Pick up some trash from your seat, from your street. Uh, found a school. Uh, volunteer to help someone worse off than yourself. If you're, there's something in the turn of the mindset. I, 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 I am very far from despair because Every day we're getting up and we're making beautiful new things for the Lord happen. And uh, they're good in themselves and they lead to us an upward spiral of, of, of goodness. So if you would like, if you're a priest or a seminarian and you'd like more beautiful liturgy, all it takes is an organ and a cantor. And maybe you can only do it once a month uh do do it once a month if you're would like this from your pastor um volunteer to organize right and uh see it just i talked to a woman in utah who she was a music minor in college but she wasn't a professional musician and she just started going up to people and saying you handing out a card saying you have a beautiful voice would you like to sing in the choir and she asked her pastor for a mass that currently didn't have a choir, right? Maybe it's the 7 a.m. Maybe it's the 3 p.m. last mass. Don't take away other people's. What, what, if it's working for other people, you can let them have it. You don't have to take over every liturgy. But offer an option for something classically Catholic. And uh, it appeals to young people. And it offers you an opportunity to build. So that's why I don't think dwelling on root causes, I know you said in order to overcome them, 
you can spend a lot of time thinking about how bad everything is. The key to not being overwhelmed and not falling into the sin of despair is to focus on building, creating, loving, making wherever you can uh, have family, love one other person and be faithful to them. Um, join in communities like the Benedict Sixteenth Institute or many other communities where people are called to holiness and to help each other be better. And um, we know that who wins in the end, right? We don't know what we're called to suffer. So the other part of it is the classic Catholic admonition, just pick up your cross, you know? We, we all have them. Nobody guaranteed that you're going to be able to get through this life without suffering. And it weighs you down unless you pick it up and offer it up to the Lord. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'll be sure to post uh, all the in relevant information on the, the Institute in the, um, in the show notes. Uh, and uh, best of luck. And I'll certainly keep you in my prayers for your upcoming events. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to meet you, and I enjoyed being with you. Thank you. Our culture is in a crisis, and the solution to that crisis is the gospel message. St. John's Seminary, the seminary of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, offers an online MA in pastoral ministry degree for anyone interested in receiving formation for ministry. This program helps students improve their knowledge of the Catholic intellectual tradition and develop practical skills for ministry. A studio with professional video, audio, and lighting equipment allows our students to have an enjoyable technological experience, a necessity for any online learning environment. Anyone who is working in and around the Roman Catholic Church in North America needs an education like this. There's no way you could get this kind of education anywhere than at a seminary. Our online Master of Arts in Pastoral Ministry offers you the chance to continue your education in ministry and designed to provide you with the knowledge, spiritual formation, and practical skills that you need to serve the family of God in our parishes, schools, and other ministries. By grounding yourself in the intellectual tradition of the Catholic Church, you will be able to go out into this culture and leaven it with the good news.